Don't act like that song has not been in your head all series long. Don't pretend you're pious. I think the band Aerosmith um, realized they had reached a pinnacle in their career the moment that Disney World decided to name a thrill ride after them. Um, if you've never been to Hollywood Studios and Disney World, there is the Rock and Roller Coaster starring Aerosmith. Now, I went on this roller coaster when I was a teenager. I do not remember it being much of a big deal. And so a decade later, I uh, just married Erica. We were newlyweds. We moved to Florida. We decided to spend a day at Hollywood Studios. And I spent the day convincing my, my new bride that that rock and roller coaster really wasn't a roller coaster. It's more like a thrill ride. At least that's how I remembered it. It's always interesting what you remember when you're younger and forget when you're older. And and the reason I was trying to convince my wife that this is not a roller coaster because she made it very clear to me early on that she hates roller coasters. She's been, she went on one or two when she was a kid, miserable experience for her, never wanted to go on another roller coaster again. So I told her, it's not a roller coaster. It's a thrill ride with Aerosmith. Come on. And, um, and she said, well, well, does it have loops? Does it go upside down? And I said, I don't remember any loops on, on this thrill ride. Um, she's like, does it go fast? I was like, no, it's, it's Disney. Come on. Um, he said, well, does it have any steep drops? I'm like, it's indoors. How steep could the drops be? And I don't know if you've ever sat next to somebody who hates roller coasters, and you've sat next to them on what happens to be a roller coaster. Um, sure enough, she, she trusted me. We sat on. The ride took off. I think it was the second loop. The second loop where we were upside down that my bride, whom I love, starts screaming, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. <laughs> Tears streaming down her face. Tears streaming down my face because her nails are digging into my skin. <laughs> miserable, miserable experience. So I learned my lesson. A few years later, um, I got myself a pass to Bush Gardens in Tampa Bay. And I didn't even try and get Erica to get a pass as well. But I wanted to go back to the days when I was a teenager and ride roller coasters back to back to back. I mean, that was the day. And so I thought, what better idea than to invite a high school uh, student with me to spend the day. And so I invited my, my nephew, Josh, who was in high school at the time. Josh thought that was awesome. What a cool uncle I am. I'm going to take my nephew. We're going to spend the day going from roller coaster to roller coaster at Bush Gardens. And... Um, so that's what we do. We, we get to the park. We, we run right away to the first roller coaster. Fantastic. We, we run as soon as we can to the second roller coaster. Great ride. We, we run to the third roller coaster, and we get ready to run to the fourth roller coaster. And I realize I cannot run without throwing up. <laughs> Something has changed in me since I was a teenager. And, um, and I thought, it is going to be so uncool to have your uncle puke. After three roller coasters, if, if you're a high school student. And, and so I did the only thing I could think of. And I said, hey, Josh, um, hey, before we do another roller coaster, I hear they have a great dog show here at Bush Gardens. I don't know. I mean, you're only at Bush Gardens so many times. And so, you know, so I talked my nephew into sitting next to his uncle to watch a dog and animal show for at least 20 minutes of air conditioning. And, and yet that was not enough. And so I pulled another move. I said, hey, Josh, I hear they have a great ice skating show. At Bush Gardens. So my nephew watched, we sat next to each other, we watched dudes and leotards flip each other around on ice, and I realized it probably would have been less uncool if I just puked. But 
It's amazing what we forget when we're younger and remember when we're older, the, the things that don't seem like such a big deal back then. Life goes on and it becomes a bigger and bigger and bigger deal. Life, all of a sudden, it has these high highs and these big drops into lows. And it becomes wearing on us. Maybe to the point that we begin to lose our hope. As we finish up our Dream On series today, we're going to talk about one more dream that we all have. See, I think we all dream about hope. We have a dream that, that life will get better than this. That, that the future is brighter than, than our current situation. But the thing is, life doesn't always play by those rules. You see, life gets wilder on us, gets a little more nauseating to us, a little higher highs and bigger drops to lower lows, and to possibly a point where we lose our hope. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're sitting there and you go, yeah, I've lost hope. And maybe for the rest of us, maybe we haven't lost hope, but sometimes we forget about hope, where it comes from, what it is. And and so... I. I just want to talk to you this morning. First, I want to talk about just some reasons why I think we we tend to lose hope. Um, The first one is this, our circumstances. Our circumstances. In other words, maybe you're in a a current situation where where things are rough, and it's easy to start believe that it's only going to stay rough. Maybe you're like me, you're looking into the future of your life, and you see the oncoming crises all right, I'm looking, I'm going, I got weddings I'm going to need to pay for. I've got some college I'm going to need to, to pay for. I've got a roof I'm going to have to put on my house. And, and you look at the future crises and then you look at your current resources. And you go, okay, something does not match up here. And all of a sudden you find yourself getting stressed and depressed. You know, the number one medication prescribed in America right now are antidepressants. Because our circumstances, they're getting to us. We're beginning to lose hope over our current situations. Maybe it's our timing. Our timing. This is not a new problem. In fact, if you were to go into the New Testament scriptures, you would see some Christians who exist in the first century, and, uh, and they believe that when Jesus said he was coming back, it meant, like, that next weekend. Uh, you know, they're like, he's coming back any day. Like, don't even sit down. He might come back. You want to be ready. And, and they, would, they would get really excited. In fact, a lot of them, they sold all their possessions. Um, and, and then all of a sudden, Jesus didn't come back. <laughs> God didn't have it played out to their timing. They kind of missed the scriptures where Jesus like, go tell everybody about me, then I'll come back. They missed that part, and all of a sudden, they become hopeless because God's not doing things in their timing. And then another reason I think we, um, we begin to lose hope is our discernment, especially when it comes to the voice of God. Now, I don't know if you're one of those people, or I bet you you know one of those people who who feel the freedom to go, you know what, God told me the other day, or God said this was going to happen. I can just tell you right now, I am not one of those people who has the confidence to say that. I'll, I'll say, you know, I got a hunch, maybe, that God's nudging me in a certain direction, or maybe this is going to happen. I, I, I don't always feel the free. I don't know if it's God said it or it's gas. It's like the same twist in my stomach. And, and, but, but sometimes we, we have this, we think we know what God's going to do. We think we know what he wants us to do, and yet it doesn't work out how we expect it to. And our expectations aren't met, or we, we don't have clarity, and we begin to lose, well, maybe God's not talking to me at all. Maybe, maybe I'm way off track, and we begin to lose our hope. And another reason I think we lose hope is simply our pleasure. When, when life's going good, we don't think about hope. We don't need hope. We just assume it'll always be this good. You see, hope in its nature tends to show up, or we tend to look for it the most, in the storm of life. When things, not, when things aren't going so well. And, and there was this movie that came out many, many years ago called Hope Floats. 
And I'm just here to tell you this morning, hope does not float. <laughs> if anything, hope sinks. If hope was an inanimate physical object and you were to place it on a body of water, it would just sink down to the ocean floor. I mean, you could tie a rope to it. And the reason I know this is because it says in Hebrews 6 that we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Why? Because we have this hope as an anchor for the soul firm and secure. You see, there's some things I want you to know about hope this morning. And the first is simply this. Hope is an anchor. It's an anchor. While the storm is raging above the surface and the wind and the waves are going crazy, it's hope that remains secure down below. And when we tether ourselves to hope, we are able to remain steady during the storm. I mean, that's kind of hope. Often hope can seem hidden. I mean, just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's there. But, but have you ever noticed how God tends to hide the things he really likes? Uh, kind of like Halloween candy. My, my kids, they'll go out and, and get you know, bags full of Halloween candy. And then they'll go to bed which is my cue to go ahead and rummage through their Halloween candy. And I take out anything that has any like peanut butter chocolate combination or if there's dark, dark chocolate, oh my goodness, that's disappearing. And, and I will take it and I will hide it in places my kids can't even find. I'm not going for dad of the year or anything like that, but <laughs> I will hide it because I like to hide the good stuff. And I think sometimes God hides hope. Maybe it's to protect it till the right time for it to be revealed. Maybe it's so that when he does reveal it, it's in his perfect timing so he can take the credit. But whatever the reason God hides it, sometimes hope you have to dig for it a little bit. And then if you find it, you need to hold on to it or tether yourself to it so you can remain steady in the storm. You know, I had one of those times in my life, maybe you've been there too, where I was between jobs. And I was leaving one organization and kind of felt like coming out of the land of slavery. It was just a bad situation. And I believe in Jesus, so, I, so I, I believe that God had something better for me, perhaps a promised land, something better than where I was. However, at, at this point of the story, I was in the land in between, the wilderness. And, and to make matters worse, we had our third child on the way. And, and it's often in the land in between, in the wilderness, between the, the land of slavery and the promised land, it's in this land in between that hope really only does one of two things. It's either where your hope goes to die or where your hope is able to flourish like it never has before. And so in this land between, I decided to dig. I decided to dig, and I decided to dig desperately in the scriptures of God. And I found something. And if you take nothing else away from this sermon this morning, I want you to have this. It's a chapter in the Bible that I got to cling to during a land-in-between moment in my life. It's Psalm chapter 25. It's a psalm where King David is in a land in between, and he's crying out to God, searching for hope, and he does find some. It's a prayer he has that became a prayer for me, and I want to share it with you. In fact, I just want to share you the last verse of it where it wraps up, because it says this, May integrity and uprightness protect me, because my hope, Lord, is in you. You see, hope is more than an anchor. Hope is a person. Hope is a person. If we fast forward in the scriptures of the Bible, we'll get to the New Testament. 
And you read about this guy named Paul. And Paul goes and he plants churches in, in Europe and Asia. And he's got an intern by his side as he's doing this young man named Timothy. And so Paul pours into Timothy. But Paul plants this one particular church in this place called Ephesus. And he decides to leave Timothy as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus being a young church, it's got issues, okay? It's got some leadership issues. It's got some some morality issues. And so Paul writes letters back to Timothy. And he says, you know, Timothy, I want to encourage you. I want you to stay strong. Here's some instruction. Here's some things that might work. But I want to encourage you to to stay strong and continue to lead even when there's some some rough waters. And he says this to Timothy in chapter 4. He says, this is why we lay Labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people and especially of those who believe. Church, I think sometimes we forget that we serve and we follow a living God. If we can get that, it's like the big E on the I chart. Everything else, you know, surrounds it. But, but we don't serve a dead Savior. We serve a resurrected Savior. One who is still living, hope is still a person. And I'm here to remind you that if you have Jesus this morning, you have a hope. You have a hope. And and you can hold on to that hope. And I guess if you don't have Jesus this morning, then my question to you is, where is your hope? Who do you trust in? Who, Who do you believe in? And are they trustworthy? You know, sometimes we can have a lot of belief and a lot of trust in someone else or something else, and we can place our hope there, but it's not worthy of that hope placement. We can put our hope in the wrong things. You know, we, if we were all on a cruise ship right now, and, and, and one of you fell over the edge, or maybe you got pushed out, you deserved it, someone pushed you out, but you're in the water, and you're treading water, and you need some help. And uh, the rest of us can be, okay, well, we've got options for you, we've got what Looks like a life vest here. That, that might be helpful. Up, oh, up. Oh, somebody's found a mechanic's wrench. It's rather large, interesting looking. Which would you like, the wrench or the life vest? Which would you like? And you could be treading water and say, throw me the wrench. I believe in the wrench. The wrench will come through for me with all my heart. I believe in the wrench. And we could throw the wrench out to you and you will die. Because it's not the sincerity of your belief. It's not the sincerity of your trust and your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. And if you have Jesus, then you have someone who is trustworthy. You have a hope. And the Bible tells us that, hey, we came from Jesus. When all this is over, we're going back to Jesus. So in the meantime, in the land in between, we can trust Jesus. We have a hope. In fact, I think we should say that out loud this morning. I think on the count of three, I'd like you to say with me, I have a hope. You ready? Don't say it if you don't believe it, but we're going to say it. Here we go. One, two, three. I have a hope. Yeah, we have a hope in Jesus. And Jesus says, if you have that hope, then I've got something else for you to do. You see, hope is also a response. Hope is a response If we have hope, then Jesus says, I need you to do something with that hope. In fact, Paul goes on to tell Timothy, he says, Command and teach these things, Timothy, but don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. In other words, before Paul starts to tell Timothy what to do with this hope, he tells him, here's what not to do. Don't let anybody else look down on you because you're young. Don't let them stop you. Which I think is interesting because Timothy at this point is probably about 35 years of age. And I think we could say, well... Old, young, I mean, that, that's, 
That could be an age thing, but probably where Paul's talking here, it's more of a mindset. I just turned 40 last year, and, uh, and I feel like I'm kind of too old to be young anymore, and hopefully too young to be old. And so, so age really for me is now going to be a mindset. It's going to be a, a choice for me. And I know we have some really old people in our church who think really young. And I don't think Paul's talking to you in this moment. I don't think he is. I think, I think Paul's talking about an older mindset. And if you'll go with me on a little thrill ride here, I want to talk about this for a moment, church. Because Paul is saying, don't let the older people look down on you because you're young. Don't let them try and stop you. And I think it's interesting, often the older we get, sometimes the older somebody else has to be in order for us to take them seriously. You know, I think there's two types of old people in church. I think there are the Pauls and there are the Sauls. You know, when we look, we look at Paul... In his adult life, he spends his time pouring into guys like Timothy, pouring into the next generation, encouraging them, giving them instruction, but pouring into them so that they can take this Christianity thing far beyond Paul's lifespan. He ends up taking his passion and pouring that into the next generation so it can fuel them forward. And then there's the Sauls. I mean, before he was Paul, he was Saul. And when he was Saul, what did he try to do? He tried to stop this whole thing. He tried to stop what the young people were doing, this, this whole Jesus talk. He said, no, 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 that's ruining our Jewish traditions. That's ruining the preferences of our Jewish leaders. And so, so Saul tries to do whatever he can to slow it down, to stop it. And what, is, what does Jesus do in Acts? Jesus comes to Saul and goes, Saul, stop it. Stop what you're doing. You're not going to be able to slow it down anyway. You're just going to be a speed bump. So you might as well fuel it forward. Because they're getting the reins on this whole Christianity thing. And I want you to be Paul. And some of us in here, we're going to be mulch soon. Which means we got a choice what we want to do with the rest of our years. Do we want to be the Paul or do we want to be the Saul? And let me just tell you this. Um, I think Saul had good intentions. I, I think he thought, you know, i got to preserve the preferences of the Jewish leaders. And, and let me just tell you, church, the moment you and I gave our lives to Jesus is the moment we died to our preferences. It, it, Jesus didn't say, hey, come follow me and bring everything you care about with you. Bring all your preferences, the, the lights you like, the music you like, the sound, the volume, the, the sermons, the what have you, because it's all about you, right? No, he didn't say that. He said, hey... Take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow me. And the moment we took up our cross is the moment we died to our personal preferences. We get worship just the way we like it in heaven for eternity. That should be enough, I think. And I think we have this choice, what we want to do with the years we have left. It's interesting what we remember when we're younger and then forget when we're older. I remember being a teenager in church growing up, and when the service was over, me and a couple other guys, we decided to start a Christian rock and roll band. And so we would go ahead and gather up the loudest instruments we could find, put them on a stage just like this, crank up the volume, and start you know, playing through these songs we were writing. And I always remember those back doors. I don't know why she stayed so late, but Mrs. Butler would show up, and she'd run through those back doors, and she'd start yelling at us. She's like, you boys, turn that music down. You need to get off the stage. You don't belong on that stage. And the irony is half of us went into ministry. <laughs> and if you fast forward in the story, Mrs. Butler's dead, and look who's on stage. <laughs> I 
Do you want to be a speed bump or do you want to fuel it forward? We can hold on to our traditions. We can hold on to our children, but we cannot hold on to both. And there is coming a day, there is coming a day probably sooner than later where I get to sit in that seat and watch my children lead me in worship. And I'll just tell you, I'm going to hate the music. (laughs) Needs more bass, less treble, I don't know. But it's just not going to be my style. And I pray that there's, I can get lost in that, how much I hate it. I can get lost in how much I love that my children are leading me in worship and taking this Jesus thing to the next level. I pray that there's a day that I get to sit in one of those seats and watch my grandson preach his heart out and call me to repentance. You see, Jesus knows that if we will respond to his hope and begin to give hope to the next generation, we actually get more hope in return. Jesus calls us to respond. Paul says it this way, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers. And let me just say this, if you're feeling on the young end of this uh, talk this morning, and you're going, well, I'm too young to set an example... No, you're not. It's throughout the Bible. God uses young people. You've got King Josiah at age 26, led the greatest revival of Israel back to God. You've got Isaiah and Jeremiah, who God called them to prophesy when they were teenagers. They probably hadn't even hit puberty yet, and they're out there going, repent. I mean, you can't even take that seriously. (laughs) You've got a middle school girl in Mary. She would not even qualify to lead one of our high school small groups, yet Jesus, or yet God says, you qualify to raise up Jesus. And Jesus was done forgiving the sins of the world by age 33. See, Paul says, this is what you need to do with your hope. Set the example. It's, a, it's, it's for everybody. And he goes this, he says this, set the example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. I want to just sit on this verse for a second. I want to let God challenge us. If you've got the hope of Jesus, I want you to just let God for a moment challenge you. Where do you think he wants you to set the example of hope this week? Is it in your speech when you go to work tomorrow? Is it what you say or don't say? Is it in your conduct this week? Is, is it in the way you love those God has placed within your life, maybe your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, your friends? Is it in your faith and what you share? Or maybe it's in your purity. Where does God want you to set the example this week? Paul says, I want you to set the example, and then until I come, I want you to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. He says, I want you to set the example, and I want you to devote yourself to the scriptures. Why do they have to read it out loud publicly? Because they were an illiterate society back then. They didn't have the printing press. They didn't have their iPhone. And, and so they had to read it out loud. And the more you could hear it, the more it would go into your heart. And for us, we have the advantage. We get, to, we get the text. We get, to, we get all of it. We get to read it. And, and that's the beauty of the text. You see, if we serve a living Savior, then it means he still has a living word for us to receive. I mean, that's the beauty of the Bible. Jesus is still talking. 
He's still talking. He's been talking for 2,000 years. He's still talking every time we're willing to pick it up and read it. We have an infinite text. Sure, there's no reason for us to have hope if it's based off our knowledge, but it isn't. We have a living word that we can devote ourselves to, to reap the hope, to dig for it and find it each and every day. And sometimes I'll have people say, you know, I I don't want to just read it, I want to study it. I like what Pastor Chuck Swindoll says. He says, the difference between reading the Bible and studying the Bible is a piece of paper. In other words, when you don't just read it, but you begin to write down, maybe it's on a piece of paper, maybe it's in your phone, what have you, but you begin to write down, what is God saying to you? What are the questions that, that reading this is bringing up in your mind? What does he want to show you? Where do you need to dig? Where are you seeing the living word work through your life? You see, hope, it's really not about me and it's not about you. It's about all of us moving closer and closer to Jesus. You see, we have a world that wants to see. Will we really cling to Jesus when we have storms in our life? Will he really be our anchor? Will we really cherish his living word enough to devote ourselves to his scripture? Will we set the example by the way we live? Will we, will we set the example for the next generation and pour in to the next generation? Will we live out this dream of hope? You see, for most of my vocational career, I've got to work with teenagers. And let me just tell you, there is so much hope in the next generation. And I've, I've, the last seven years, I've got to work with more adults like yourselves. And let me just tell you, adults, um, we have the same problems as teenagers, just grayer or less hair. That's really what it comes down to. I, I remember the older people when I was in youth ministry going, you need to talk to those teenagers about sex and drugs. And I'm thinking, we need to talk to the adults about sex and drugs. <laughs> then maybe we could get somewhere. But there's so much hope in the next generation. And it will require adults. It will require some Pauls pouring in. To the Timothys. I remember early on in, in youth ministry, I got the chance to go to this youth pastors conference. I'm in a room like this full of youth pastors. And there's this guy named Les Christie who's been doing youth ministry for years. Now he's old and gray. And, uh, and he talks about how, guys, you need to do youth ministry. You need to pour so much hope into the next generation that you get in trouble for it. Just like Jesus. Jesus got in trouble. He said, but here's what I ask. That as you get in trouble, there's one thing I want you to do before you go. And that's leave a stain on the carpet before you leave. I remember that. Several, several years later, I've had the privilege of watching students who were once in the youth group. Now they've gone on into ministry. And there was one, uh, he's an adult now. He just started a a youth ministry job not too long ago. And and he told me, he said, Tom, he said, uh, the church leadership, you know, they hired me and then they sat me down and they said, okay, before you start ministering to high schoolers, there's some things, some rules, some rules we need to go over. Rule number one, um, no use of Vaseline, please, for, for any activities as cool as you, and funny as you think that is. Um, you know, a couple years back, we had a youth pastor thought that was a great idea. We still have handprints from high schoolers down the halls uh, of the auditorium walls, and, and we tried to paint them and everything, and uh, we still can't get those shiny handprints off the walls. So no Vaseline, please. Rule number two, no excessive use of smoke machines. Uh, we're tired of the fire department having to come for false alarms. Um, we know our past youth pastor, he knew them on a first-name basis they came so often that but, but we're done with that. Please, no excessive use of smoke machines. And he said, rule number three, no matter how cool of an idea it sounds, please, no more wet, wet cold spaghetti for anything. He said, 
You can look around and see the stains on the carpet still here from that guy who thought it was a great idea to do activities with, with cold, wet spaghetti. He said, Tom, they had me sign a piece of paper. And at the top of the paper, it said, the Tom Goodlett rules. <laughs> the day a church has to name rules after you, you know you've done something right. <laughs> but see, we have a church that's too big. Or, sorry, we, have, we have a hope that's too big. To go small. I mean, there's no point in us going small. We have, we, we have a hope that's too big to not do anything. It was about this time last year that myself and another Harbor Sider on staff, we were invited to a meeting with the City of Safety Harbor. And uh, they had a presentation for us, and they started talking about um, this kind of small family event they wanted to do in downtown Safety Harbor around the holidays. And, uh, and they, they wanted to, you know, we need some cookies, we need some crafts, and, and really that was about it. And, and they asked us and some other businesses, will we be willing to help sponsor maybe a craft or, or some, uh, some cookies and drink and and so each business said, yeah, we'll, we'll chip in. We, we'd love to be a part of that. And, and eventually it came to us representing Harborside. And, and I looked at the city coordinator for that event. I said, you know, um, we, we'd love to help out any way we can. But, but really our heart of hearts is we'd love to partner with you. We, we see the potential that this could be something big. This could be something wonderful for our city. And in uh, and, and Harborside, we kind of would rather go big or go home. And the, the city coordinator of the event, she looked at me. She didn't quite know what to do with me. Um, but she took a risk on us. She took a chance on us. And so we had several other meetings. We began to plan out what would be Harbor Holiday. And, and, and we all of a sudden, you know, there were be these big activities going on that would draw more and more people. And we got really excited. The city got really excited of what this could be and what this could mean for the city of Safety Harbor. And, and it was the last meeting right before the event. We're, we're sitting around this, this big table. And it's all, it's all city workers and me and one other person from Harborside. We were the only outside organization invited to this meeting. And we're going around sharing all the things that, are, that we've now got set up and how excited we are and how great it's going to be. And before the meeting ends, there's, there's one lady on the end. She just kind of raises her hand and she, she asks the city coordinator, she says, do you think 200 cookies will be enough? We represent the library. Do you think 200 cookies will take care of everybody at the library? And, and I watched the city coordinator just kind of put her head down shake it a little she looked at me and she looked at the librarian and says honey there's going to be thousands of people at this event you need to go big or go home Ethel (laughs) we have a hope as big and when we're big with our hope it becomes contagious and other people want that type of hope we have a hope that's so big there's no point in trying to keep it quiet And as we get ready to end our service today, I want to invite our prayer partners to come forward. And if you have never placed your hope in the anchor of Jesus Christ, I I want you to go big before you go home today. I want you to take advantage of this opportunity and put your hope in Jesus. And for the rest of us who have our hope in Jesus, it's time we remembered that. It's time we remembered how big our hope is. Our hope is so big that we have to share it. Our hope is so big that we need to grab an Easter invite on your way out. Invite somebody to what God's going to do on Easter. You need to sign up to be a part of the A-Drop so we can bless our city another time. We have a hope so big we can't just do nothing about it. We have a hope that's big enough that we need to share it. So I want you to stand up with me. Stand up. 
I'm going to ask us to say it one more time, but I'm going to tell you, please don't say it if you don't believe it. I want us to, to declare that I have a hope. Are you ready? On the count of three. One, two, three. I have a hope. Let's say it again. I have a hope. One more time, but loud. I have a hope. Now go out and share that hope. You're dismissed. God bless you.